Do you ever find that, that you compare yourself to others? Uh, perhaps occupationally or, or relationally? What about fitness or, or, or level of health, social standing, or, or generationally? There was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal this weekend comparing the views on work between millennials and Gen Zers and their parents and, and how they viewed their role in the workforce. Generationally speaking, I think we, we like to think that we're, we're progressing, that, that as new generations rise up, we are more enlightened, that we are learning. I did read this the other day, that if you think you're smarter than the previous generation, consider that 50 years ago, the owner's manual of a car showed you how to adjust, to adjust the valves, and today it warns you not to drink the contents of the battery. Hopefully, we are moving forward, but let's be careful about dismissing the wisdom of those who've come before us. But with regards to comparisons, when have you found the practice of comparing yourself to others helpful? When have you found it motivating, perhaps, or provided incentives for you to, to work harder or make certain changes? When have you found it to be unhelpful? perhaps even toxic? When has it prevented you from working harder or making certain changes? Social comparison theory is an idea that was first termed and fully developed by social psychologist Leon Festinger, who hypothesized that we are actually unable to self-judge our opinions and abilities accurately. And instead, we rely on comparing ourselves to other people in order to form an evaluation. In other words, we, we lack the capacity to assess ourselves on our own. We need some sort of standard to set ourselves over and against, and so according to Festinger, we naturally look for standards of comparison in the people around us. We are always looking to see how we measure up how we fit into the hierarchy. I read something else interesting just the other day that 60 to 70% of people believe that they are above average intelligence. Yeah, let that sink in for a second. But it raises the question, you know, who or what are you comparing yourself to? Because whatever or whoever they are will go a long ways in determining not only how you view yourself, but also who you are becoming. Our scripture today comes from Matthew's gospel in chapter 20. I invite you to turn there now in the Bibles that you brought with you from home or your pew Bible or on your mobile device. Now to set this up just a little the last number of Sundays we've slowly been working our way through Matthew's gospel and and we've been following these interactions that are happening between Jesus and the disciples, or even more specifically, Jesus and Peter. And each moment, each time that it seems as though Peter is finally beginning to get it, as though Peter is, is finally beginning to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do, Peter says or does something 
that makes us know he's not quite there yet. And again and again, Jesus keeps returning to this singular idea that the first will be last, and the last will be first. Peter and, his, and, and, and the disciples are struggling to understand this concept, and, and so the gospel writer returns to this theme again and again, perhaps anticipating that this will be a critical truth that we will also struggle to understand. And so, spoiler alert, this is the big idea in today's text, that the first will be last and the last will be first. And Jesus teaches this today using a a parable. But even before we read that parable, I want us to understand that this parable, it, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not told in a vacuum. Jesus tells it in response to some things going on around him. And so, just previous to our story for today, Jesus has an interaction with a person who's come to be known as the rich young ruler. And perhaps you're familiar with this story, but the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and wants to know, what is it that I have to do to inherit eternal life, to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus replies and says, well, you need to follow the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, yep, I've done that. And then Jesus says, you need to sell everything that you own and come and follow me. And we read that the rich young ruler goes away sad, for he was wealthy and had many possessions. Immediately after that interaction, Peter asks Jesus a question. On the heels of that story, Peter says, so Jesus, what will our reward be Because we've left everything and followed you. Peter says, we've done the thing that you just said, so we're in, right? What's Peter doing? Peter is comparing himself. That's exactly right. Peter says, we've done the thing. How good must we be? And so Jesus tells this parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. And when he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you what is right. So they went. And when he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, these last only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, 
friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? And so the last will be first, and the first will be last. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. This may be the first time that you've heard this parable. And maybe it's one that you've heard and read dozens of times. How does it strike you? What stands out? Does it make you feel any certain way? The rub, the, the tension in this story, it, it comes at the very end, right? Just as the landowner begins paying out the workers, and, and it unfolds in a very specific way in order to bring about this tension. The landowner says, pay the ones who came last. Pay them first. So that those who came first are sure to see what they are paid You see, if if the first get paid first and they leave, there's no tension, right? It has to happen this way because the tension comes from comparison. The tension comes when the first compare their labor to the labor of the last and thus believe their compensation should be comparably higher. And the landowner names this sin of comparison. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? The literal translation of that sentence is, is is your eye evil because I am good? You see, this is the danger with comparison. It is the basis. It forms the foundation for the sin of envy, of jealousy, of covetousness. It is jealousy for what the first workers receive. Excuse me. It is jealousy. The jealousy of those first workers believing that they should receive more for their hard efforts. Where and how have you seen this surface in your own lives? Where has comparison formed the foundation for being jealous, for being envious of what someone else has? If you have been a parent and aunt, an uncle, a teacher, or at any point been in charge of a small child for more than 10 minutes, you know that this is deeply embedded within our human nature. A child can be perfectly content with whatever it is they have until they see another child with something else. And it's almost anything else, right? It doesn't even seem to matter. Now, as we age... This this changes, but it doesn't go away, does it? 
Whether we compare what we have, what we do, or, or even how good we think we are, we either elevate ourselves over others or make ourselves discontent with what we have and who we are. So what is the solution? How are we to navigate life? You see, if, if this tendency to compare is a, is a habit that is evolved within us, if it is a habit that is so deeply ingrained, what are we to do? And how do we overcome this natural tendency that so leads easily to discontentedness, disobedience, and ultimately a diseased soul? The remedy, it turns out, is the very thing that Jesus has been hammering again and again. Jesus seems to be saying here, let's try this again. The first must become last, and the last must become first. In here lies the remedy. Or put more succinctly, it's the practice exhibited by the landowner. The cure for covetousness is generosity. Generosity of our material possessions, generosity of our time, they are the embodiment of making the first last and the last first. You see, when we are generous, when we are generous, it means that we give away to meet the needs of others before our needs are met. When we are generous with our time, it means we put the needs of others to serve them before we meet our own. And, and, and these are unnatural tendencies. These are unnatural tendencies. Let's acknowledge that for a moment. We're gearing up for our Estimate of Giving campaign in October. And for many, stewardship, giving, it's a very uncomfortable topic. Why is that? But we don't like people picking around inside of how we choose to deploy our resources, do we? Most of us are not naturally generous. Now, now the question isn't, do you give? Let's, let's talk for a moment about what generosity looks like. It's, it's not about whether you give or don't give. That's not generosity. Do you give only after you're taken care of? After you have your wants and needs met? Or, or do you give yourself away first? And I'm not even necessarily talking about giving to the church here. Let's, let's, let's take that and set that aside for a moment. Generosity simply looks like giving to others before we ever give to ourselves. If you sit down next to a hungry person and you tear your sandwich in half and you eat together, that's a very different activity than filling yourself and giving away the leftovers. The first is generosity. The second is something else. So how 
How do we learn to give ourselves away? How do we learn to do this uncomfortable thing? Duncan Robinson is the current all-time leading three-point shooter in Miami Heat history. He has the Heat record for most threes made in a half. He's got the record for most threes made in a game, most threes made in a season, and most threes made in a career. He holds the NBA records for the fastest player to reach 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700, and 800 threes in a career. Duncan Robinson was also undrafted, meaning no one projected that he would be this good at shooting three-pointers. You see, he prepared and, and practiced his way into these winning habits. Now, I've read some of his practices of preparation for how he prepared prior to ever actually getting into a game for the Miami Heat. Now, now Duncan Robinson understood that in order to get on the court and stay on the court, he would have to make shots. And not starting, it meant that he needed to come in and make shots immediately. He didn't have time to get into the flow of the game, to slowly warm up, to maybe miss a few. He needed to start making shots the moment he got onto the court. And so that's exactly what Duncan Robinson practiced. His practice regimen began with him sitting over on the bench. His coach would blow a whistle and he would stand up and walk to the scorer's table in the middle where he would check into a game. And then he would step onto the court, be passed the ball, and shoot. And if it went in, he moved to the next spot and took another shot. But if he missed, he went back to the bench and started the whole drill over again. And over and over and over. And in this way, he practiced this very specific, very particular skill, developing this very unnatural habit to be able to go into a game cold and begin making shots immediately. Friends, this is how we practice habits that are unnatural to us. We have to find these specific situations to exercise these muscles. And I don't know what that looks like for you. That's work that, that you've got to do, but I'll share with you just two personal examples of, of how Amy and I are working together to develop habits like this. When it comes to giving away our material possessions, one of the things that we have chosen to do is set up direct deposit. And so when the paycheck hits the bank account, it doesn't matter if we feel like giving that week, it doesn't matter what else is happening in our worlds, money immediately is given away, right? So that it doesn't depend on how I feel that week. Another habit that I've just picked up in the last maybe 10 days I had found myself and become aware that whenever I was pulling up to a gas station or to 7-Eleven, the grocery store, I would very purposefully put blinders on. I would stay focused in here and, and not make eye contact with some of the people that sometimes tend to frequent some of these establishments. 
And I'm talking about some of our friends that are experiencing homelessness. I very purposefully sought to avoid an interaction. It might be uncomfortable. They might ask me for something. And so I pretended to be too busy to see. And so what I've said to myself is, I'm going to do this. Nick, you're going to keep your eyes up and you're going to keep your eyes out. I'm not going to avoid eye contact. I'm going to seek it out. And I'm going to see the humanity in this person. I am not going to fail to look for the image of God in the people that God puts in my path. This is not because I'm better than anybody else. This is simply an area of weakness for me that I need to exercise a muscle in. And so I encourage you, in three, four weeks, ask me how I'm doing with it. There may be some successes, and I can guarantee you there'll be some failures. But I have got to set up habits that will help me grow into the person that God is drawing me into. Where is God calling you to grow in generosity? That's for you to figure out. But friends, here's the good news. Is that God is not calling us to develop these habits of generosity in order to earn our grace. You are already a beloved child of God. Friends, we are called to develop these habits of generosity in order to free us into the lives that God has for us. Friends, let's learn to be generous together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.